0: So, we have three post-exilic books. In other words, after the time they left Babylon and returned back to Israel. Or the books written after the time they had spent in Babylon. And so those three books in the chronological historical order, Esther is the final historical book. And so you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those three books. And so Ezra finishes about 15 years before the book of Nehemiah. To try to give you a reference point, that's about 150 years since Babylon first took Daniel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go away to, to Babylon. So the first deportation to Babylon has been about 150 years. And if you remember, there were three distinct deportations because of the rebelliousness of the children of Israel, unwilling to submit to God's spanking, which was Babylon conquering them. And so in that third deportation, they destroyed Jerusalem and temple that Solomon had built. So that was quite a devastating blow. And now we're a little uh, short of about 100 years um, after the first captives came back to the promised land. So um, Zerubbabel was the first group, and then Ezra brought another group, and then another group now is going to come with Nehemiah. So just to back up a little bit, to try to give you a a more wider picture yet, we're about 1,000 years from Moses, and we're about 400 years to Christ. So that's always a, a good helping understanding there to give you a reference point. So if you remember, David, awesome king, his son Solomon, not so awesome, and marrying all of those pagan 700 wives, 300 concubines. The kingdom was split after him. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Southern kingdom of Judah, which made up the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin had been sort of hooked to Judah as one tribe after an incident in the book of Judges where the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out. And... um, so. they were together in the southern kingdom called Judah. Then there's the northern kingdom, which was typically a more wicked kingdom. Remember when all their people started to leave the northern kingdom because they wanted the temple, they started to migrate and, and readjust where they were living towards Jerusalem, that they quickly built two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Beersheba, to, to try to say, hey, here, here we can worship here, um, as if that would be acceptable. And uh, uh, that didn't go well. But in time, a, a great kingdom was raised up, Assyria. And they took out the northern kingdom called Israel. And some years later, God now raised up Babylon, greater, and Assyria is now wiped out. And they conquer Judah. And so the Assyrians, they scattered and intermarried the, the ten tribes to such the point, to such a point that, you don't tell me, Siri, I tell you. You learn. You, 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 you learn a little bit here. Might get saved. Anyway, um, so those, those kingdoms got just deteriorated. They really never did come back, Ever. But Judah was promised that there would be a time that they would come back out of Babylon. And so the Babylonians allowed them to keep their nationality even though they were taken away to a foreign country. They would have been allowed to stay in their own country had they not kept rebelling. Two very different ideologies in in the way countries ran. Assyria wanted to conquer you, take away all your nationality, bring other people in from other countries, you had to marry them and lose your national identity. That was the Assyrians. And of course, from that, you got the Samaritans, if you guys remember from that northern Israeli uh, thing with the Assyrians. But the Babylonians allowed them to keep their identity to a major degree. So understand that Judah, even though it was primarily Judah and Benjamin, there was... A part of all tribes there. And, and don't forget, the temple was there, so the tribe of Levi was there, even though it wasn't counted as one of the 12 tribes. There was actually 13 tribes if you counted Levi as a tribe, but God didn't count them as a tribe. The guy, Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, he got two tribes one called Ephraim from his son Ephraim and his son Manasseh. Say, so where's the tribe of Joseph? There should be a Joseph tribe. Yeah, there should be. He actually got two of them, but they weren't after his name. They were after his son's names. Quite interesting. But either way, um, there, there was now a, a group that made up the 12 tribes, but predominantly the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the Levites would be the predominant people that would come back from Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? When you you really start to follow this along, especially when you see God's protection on Judah, since that's from where the Messiah would come. I'll give you a a general idea and a help uh, why they were in Babylon to begin with. Um, Jeremiah tells us it's because every seventh year they were to let the land go rest. It was God's year. It was his tithe, so to speak. And they, by faith, could never give that year of tithe. If I took a whole year off, I may not make it financially. I, I, I can't trust God to take care of me. So they, you know, God's so mean. Take a year's vacation. That's horrible. You're such a mean God. You're so legalistic. Man, when you really look at the way God set things up, it was sweet. Because basically, almost three months out of the year, everybody 20 years old and above, a man, was to go to Jerusalem. They basically had to take three months off a year just to go to worship in Jerusalem. Anybody want to be forced to go live in Jerusalem for three months and worship God? Any takers here? We're Gentiles and we think it's awesome. And then every seventh year, they had to take the whole year off. <laughs> of course, knowing how disobedient the children of Israel were, they never really entered into the God's rest. They never entered into his plan. They really never had the benefits of God's design on how he set things up. And a matter of fact, they, they were quite grieved having to go to Jerusalem. As we finally get to the last book of the Old Testament, uh, they, they were bummed. It's just, it's taking all my energy away. It's just oppressive to have to obey you. And, and finally God said, no more. You, you, you're not, I'm not bothering you anymore. No more sacrifices. You're not required to come to Jerusalem anymore. It's over. And there was 400 years of silence until John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, however, in those 70 plus years of living in Babylon, the Jews, as they do everywhere in the world, they prospered. And they became wealthy and they became influential. Remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the book of Daniel? Remember Esther and the book of Esther and Mordecai? I mean, uh, what about Nehemiah here? The guy right next to the, the most powerful man in the world. He was his right-hand man. So the Jews just seemed to prosper. And so Babylon was was scientifically and architecturally and and with water system and sewage systems and gardening systems. It was uh, really one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an incredible place to live. And the idea of going and living in a third world country like Jerusalem, Israel, that was just a broken down bunch of ruins, basically, with a bunch of people that were living there, they're just so poor and uneducated and, and and they're just sort of a bunch of backwoods people living in the amongst the rocks. It, it didn't really appeal to the majority of the people. So you have at this time around two and a half to three million people believed to be living. And how many does Zerubbabel get? 50,000. That's like not even 2%. I mean, that, that's pretty pretty embarrassing isn't it not even two not even a good 10% just 50,000 people it's all that was willing to go back and live there well so Ezra ends they got the temple built and really not much more they're just sort of sitting in a place that is very 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 hard to live there because of the raiders raiding. So they got the temple but they can't really use the temple because if they ever gather to worship the raiders will show up to rob them or to persecute them or to make their life miserable for coming to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's about 75 years before when Zerubbabel came to build the temple that they did at that time try to build the walls as well. And I've got this documented in your notes as you follow through the book of Ezra, which we just went through. But the enemy lied. And and when they said, hey, you got to stop this group. They're rebellious people. Check the, the history books. You'll see that they were told to never be able to build here again. Of course, after that, they were given permission to build, but they said, don't check the latest Uh, reports go check earlier reports they were sworn to never be able to build and they're over here and he they the guy actually lies they actually say the walls are almost completely built here in Jerusalem that's what the report is and they're building this temple it really is a a monument of rebellion against you and so they were stopped but then years later um, they started back up remember under Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah, or excuse me, uh, Zephaniah and Haggai, they started prophesying, saying, hey, you guys got to get back to work and obey God and he'll bless you. And they start building. And then they said, hey, you're breaking the law. They send word back. And this time, Zerubbabel says, hey, do check the archives. You'll see that we were given permission. Yeah, that's true. But we had permission after that. So they check it. And then Darius there in Ezra 6 says, hey, Help these guys out. Not only all you guys that were trying to stop them to build, you guys actually got to give them supplies to help them build. Whatever they want to do. And in particular, they they attempted again for about the third time to rebuild the walls. So there were definitely times that they were trying to rebuild the wall. Probably the portion that was around the temple. When you go to Israel and you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking at Jerusalem, the eastern wall of the city is also the wall to the temple. So probably in as they're working on rebuilding the temple area, they were rebuilding at least part of that eastern wall would be my guess. Um, but they by no means... We're coming close to succeeding to building the wall. As a matter of fact, it virtually was completely not built at all when Nehemiah comes on the scene. Well, let's start into Nehemiah chapter 1. And here in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel. The name Nehemiah, interesting, means Yahweh comforts, or the comfort of God. Most believe that Nehemiah was of the tribe of Judah. Um, we don't have facts on that, but we do know that his father, which would make sense, he'd be part of the tribe of Judah, because his father's tombstone, his father's sepulcher, we learn in Nehemiah 2.3, was in Jerusalem, which would make Makes sense if his father was, that's where his sepulchre would be, where the tribe of Judah was. The month of Chesliv is, is important to take note of. It's the ninth month, which would be the month of November, December. And then the 20th year of Artaxerxes is a very important year. And it's interesting. One of those years that we know exactly the year it was. 445 B.C. Now that's going to be a very important date. We're going to get to chapter 2. And we're going to understand the prophecy of Daniel. In the 77 weeks. Because it begins with the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we know the exact day. And we know the exact year, and we will talk about that. Shushan, the citadel. Uh, this is in Persia or Iran today. It's in the Elam section. So if you look on the map of Iran, you see a section uh, sort of close to I, sort of down close to Iraq. It's called the area of Shusha or the area of Elam, and uh, I put in there, and you can't get it off your paper. But if you're on the app, you, you'll see a lit up reference line that if you click on that, it'll take you to a website and show you a map of where it's at, but it'll also show you the runs of Shusha and some amazing finds they have there. So uh, you you archaeological buffs, you will enjoy the website that I've given to you to click on. But don't do it now. If you're at home, don't click on that. Um, do it later. So Shusha, sometimes it's referred to that, or Shushan. Remember, Daniel was there in his vision. Didn't say he was physically there at the time, but in his vision, he was there, and he tells us that in this vision, he was at the citadel in the province of Elam by the river Ulai. And so this all works perfectly as you look and, and find where that is what most people believed it to be, the winter palace um, of the Persian Empire at that time. So Daniel wrote his vision about 440. Again, we we just studied that as well. And, And we see in verse two that this whole thing of Esther takes place in Shushan, the same place that Nehemiah is at also. And her thing was in the third year of his reign and we know that the the reign of Xerxes the first who Esther was dealing with was between 486 and 465 BC so that helps us with some reference points that'll be important as we move on in this story just to let you know Shushan to Jerusalem is about 800 miles well verse 2 that Hanai. One of my brethren came with men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, as you read on, and we get to chapter seven, verse two, he refers to Hani again as, it is not just his spiritual brother, but it is his actual flesh and blood brother. And uh, like I said, later on, when he has to step away from being the governor of Jerusalem, he actually puts his brother Hanny in charge of Jerusalem, i.e. probably as the governor. And so Nehemiah was concerned about the country of Israel, but in particular about the welfare of Jerusalem because he knew it would be a hard, difficult place um, because of the, the hardship and the persecution that was going on at that time. David Guzik says, We might think that an important man like Nehemiah had more important things to think about than distant cities he had never been to and to a people he mostly never met. Yet, because his heart was on the things of God, his heart was not on himself, but on others. Of course, the Bible's pretty clear that we are all to carry Israel in our hearts, and especially Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because that is the place that our Lord will come back as a warrior and he's going to rule and reign there. And we are going to rule and reign there. And then when everything melts with the fervent heat, God makes a new heavens, a new earth and what else? A new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is important to God. Therefore, it is important to who? To us. Exactly. Exactly. As a matter of fact, Psalms 137, verse five and six says this, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Psalms 122, verse six and seven, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, please help Jerusalem, especially in these days, with uh, a world that so hates them. May they prosper who love you. Again, it goes back to the blessing. Whoever blesses Abraham is blessed. Whoever curses Abraham and his descendants are cursed. I love Israel. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. So since Jerusalem was special to God, it was indeed special to Nehemiah. And he's asked concerning three distinct things there in verse 2. First of all, about the Jews who had escaped. So understand that when Babylon gave their first deportation, it was the cream of the crop. They got the most intelligent students like Daniel and his buddies. They got all the princes and all of their children and all royalty, and all the upper class, and all of them went in that first deportation. And the second deportation was pretty much the middle class. But each time, people would flee and hide. As a matter of fact, many people in the area of Judah actually went and hid in the northern area by Galilee. Some of them went out of the country all the way to Egypt and lived in Egypt. So some of them had escaped, And then later had migrated back. Some of them were just left there. Even in the third deportation, the Babylonians are like, no, you can stay. (laughs) We don't want you. We don't don't need a bunch of uh, worthless type people coming to live in wonderful Babylon. You can just stay here. So there was a group that Babylonians considered undesirables that had lived there the entire time. So he's referring to this group of people as those who had escaped. Interesting archaeological study, and I, I'm not going to go into the study, but it's by a group of Jewish archaeologists. And they actually estimated at the time the deportations were happening that there is approximately 75,000 people and that at the highest number, Um, about 20,000 actually got taken away to Babylon. That a good 25% of the population had been deported, but the remaining 75% had stayed in Judah. That was their findings. I don't think that would contradict the Bible because we really don't know the percent of people that were deported versus those who were left behind. But they're actually suggesting that uh, 75% weren't deported but stayed behind and probably were scattered and, and very much oppressed. Interesting. I'll just leave that there. I have the references for you to study that on your own. But the second group of people were those who survived the captivity. So this is those who had returned with those who had returned with Ezra. How had those people that left the comforts of Babylon and the wealth and, and all of the, the more modern conveniences, how are they faring in this third world country that's very harsh and difficult to live in? And then thirdly, concerning the city of Jerusalem itself. Well, in verse three, they said to me, they're survivors who have left the captivity in the providence, stress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem was also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So they said, man, it is not going well. And they have made a little bit of progress, but then it just got burnt. It just got destroyed. So in actuality, um, they are probably regretting (laughs) having left Babylon and moved back to Israel because uh, in, in that time period, between Zerubbabel and then later Ezra, 60 years later, Ezra takes the next group in. Um, It has been nothing but a catastrophe. Very, very hard time. Now understand that a wall at this time period was everything. Without a wall, you could not have a civilization. You would constantly be raided. Your house is exposed. You cannot be safe. You cannot keep your family safe. If you have anything of any wealth, they're able to see it and they'll come in and they'll steal it. Josephus describes this time is this way. Listen to what he says. That the neighboring nations did not, excuse me, the neighboring nations did a great deal of mischief to the Jews While in the daytime they overran the country and pillaged it, and in the night they did the mischief, and so led away captive out of the country, out of Jerusalem itself, and that the roads were in the daytime found full of dead men. So not having walls was the difference between life and death, success and failure. Well, in verse 4, So it was when I heard these words that I said, down and wept and mourned for many days I was fasting praying before the God of heaven he he sat down the strength had just left his legs and he sort of collapsed he's in mourning he can't eat he's fasting and praying this was a deep sense of despondency He had no strength to stand and he had no ability to even have any kind of appetite. So understand that fasting is a beautiful and wonderful thing when it's out of a life's burden. And you're consecrating the time you would spend to prepare the meal, spending the time you would spend eating the meal, the time you would have to satisfy the the pains of hunger that would go away. All the opposite is to happen. And Isaiah says, even the money you would have spent to make the food, you should take that amount of money for that meal and go give it to the poor. So the money I would spend, I don't spend, I actually give it away. The time I would spend fixing the meal, I spend praying. The time I would spend eating the meal, which in that culture would be about Four hours would be in prayer. And then I would not have the satisfaction of my hunger not being there, but I have to endure now the pain of hunger. And all of those things combined cause a work to be done in our heart and causes the heart of God to also be touched. So Nehemiah was greatly moved by hearing this very distressing news. A couple of quotes. I don't know who they're from. They might be from me. But something along the way, I'm, I'm too old to remember. But any great work of God begins with God. Doing a great work first in the heart of that person. Every great work God does through a man, God first does a great work in them first, in their hearts. Before God will use a man greatly, another quote, before God will use a man greatly, he will first break him greatly. Boy, is that true? And if you're one that, I mean, I... When I was in high school, I just ate up every missionary book I could get. I've read virtually on every missionary movement and the main leaders uh, on, on all over the world. And modern ones as well. And boy, that's something you see over and over again. How God breaks these guys so greatly before he uses them so greatly. But we also are going to get to see here, this is all a part of the providential hand of God. You guys might remember that great heaviness and breaking came upon Ezra. Esther, Mordecai, they were brought to this great moment of climax as well with this crushing difficulty. And out of those difficult unbearable situations is when God really used Ezra when God really used Esther and this is exactly what we're seeing again and I'll tell you in the life of, of every single great Christian uh, you, you hear the same story over and over again you don't have the great story unless you have the great valley they had to go through before the victory is that true have you found that to be true in your guys's life it's just, it's just a fact. So we're going to get to see that, but this is a part of it. Having such a deep effect upon Nehemiah is a part of this providential move of God because Nehemiah is the man that God desires to use. Well, Nehemiah must become a leader to do this task that's laid before him. Just because he's a cup bearer doesn't mean he's a great leader. He probably has leadership skills in his position, but here he's going to have to be the guy, the leader carrying the weight of this entire movement of wall, getting the wall built, an almost impossible task. So what we're going to learn in the book of Nehemiah is seeing this guy evolving into a leader and all of the things he does teaches us about leadership. Leader is something, leadership is something we obviously all need in our life. Leadership is influence. Leadership applies to everyone. Everyone has an area of leadership. In some way, each one of us is a leader. The question is if we are going to be a good leader or a bad leader. A leader has a vision. A spiritual leader has a vision from God, the big difference. So the football coach has a vision for this next year and he puts the theme up on the wall and he has the the quote, you know, whatever that might be. And and everybody's fighting for that vision in every practice and every game to have success at the end of the season. So that's a secular thing for an earthly goal. But the spiritual leader, he has his vision that came from a burden, maybe his own burden. But as we know, God's behind each of those things. And, and then God gives the vision. And so now he is richly saying, God is doing this. Let's get behind his plans. So Nehemiah had to come to terms with this. Through me, Nehemiah is saying, God is going to correct a problem that's been around for 150 years the walls being torn down through me god is going to do something that has completely failed in its previous attempts we must all have a vision in order to lead so he says i was fasting and i was praying before the god of heaven so we we learn here the difference the first step of being a spiritual leader is to learn to be a man of earnestness in prayer. To carry the burden for the plan of God, for the vision of God, for the difficulties that, that, that are burdensome to God, that he wants to see these things met. In short, for us today, it's the burden of a lost and dying world that we're going to be snatched away and be in comfort in heaven with the Lord. And those people that we live next door to and we're too ashamed to, to step out into the culture saying, hey, I'm a Christian and you need Jesus. I don't want to look like that fool, you know. I, I don't want to be made fun of on the late night show. I don't want to be the, the quote-unquote Christian nerd or the Christian moron or the Christian you know, Sanders next door to the whoever, you know, or Landers or whatever. I, I've never watched Simpson, but I, I think the the Christian next door is Nathan Landers, right? Is that right? I don't want to be Mr. Landers or, or whatever. I, I don't have, you guys are going, no, it's not right. Okay, forget it. Yeah, the fact is, is people without Christ will not make it to heaven. That's a fact. We have that knowledge, but yet We need to be touched with that great burden, just like Nehemiah is in this situation. Chuck Smith has great quotes on prayer. He says, we can do no more than pray until we've prayed. But after we've prayed, then we can do more than pray. Nehemiah immediately turned to prayer and intensely seeking God in this situation. The first step of a true spiritual leader. Chuck has another quote on prayer. Prayer is the most important activity a born-again Christian can perform. It should head your list of priorities, for certainly the world around us desperately needs prayer. Prayer will open the door for God to do a glorious work in these last days. Prayer will stem the tide of evil. Another great quote by Chuck. The most important thing a born-again Christian can do is to pray. Boy, that's just common sense, isn't it? It's like saying water's wet. If you have any spiritual insight, you know how true that is. But let's just admit to each other, out of all spiritual duties, prayer is the hardest one. I was hearing one pastor speak on it, and he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He says our Bible class, where we're going to be studying intensely Greek, which is a hard thing to do for a year, we have 17 people signed up to do that. They're going to meet one night a week, and for a year, they're going to study Greek. That's a hard thing to do, to learn the language Greek. He said, the bad news is, our prayer meeting is still empty. He just simply was pointing out if it's something intellectual for us in the Western culture, we, we, we like it. If it's academic, if it's intellectual, if it feeds the brain, if it causes me to be smarter, if it gives me knowledge I don't have, we will make great sacrifices for that. Because we can see, we can see the growth, we can see the change, we can know if I study hard, I'll know it well. If I don't study hard, I won't know it well. We have control over it. But when you come to prayer, it's all spiritual. You don't get that gratification. When you sing, there's some physical gratification to it. You you, you enjoy to sing. You like the music. It it stimulates us physically. And with our ear gate and our voice gate, there's some gratification in, in the flesh to us to do that. Hearing the sermon, again, it can be interesting. There's some gratification to that. But when we come to prayer, all must die. There is not that gratification to the flesh. Matter of fact, it's very hard on the flesh. It's like, man, I've been praying three hours right now. Ten minutes, what? You know, um, it's hard. It's hard. It's amazing. Um, and, And so it really does take a move of God upon our hearts to give us a burden. To be the people of prayer, we need to be. Our soul is willing, but our flesh is weak. But notice what he he prays. He fasts, he prays, he weeps, he mourns before the God of heaven. His eyes were on the Lord only, where our eyes must also be only upon the Lord. If you can't think to give anybody else a good advice, you're like, Man, I just, my car just got broken into and uh, my house got burnt down and I lost my job. And you're just like going, oh my goodness, what do I say to this guy? I'm going to give you always the word of wisdom in any situation. You just need to get your eyes on the Lord, brother. It's always true, right? Say to somebody next to you, get your eyes on the Lord. Go ahead. Brian, you can say it to me. Go ahead. I I needed to hear that. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Psalms 139, David talks about how the Lord got his eyes on him. The Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, have sit, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and my acquainted with all my ways. But listen to verse 5 now of Psalms 139. You have hedged me in behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me you can choose to humble yourself and get your eyes on the Lord or God will humble you and get your eyes on the Lord. But the Bible always suggests you humble yourself. Have you ever noticed that? Humble yourself because God will do it, but you won't enjoy that. He's going to get you on the side. He's going to get you behind and squeeze you in until you can't do anything but look up. And it won't be comfortable, but you will get your eyes on the Lord. Well, verse five through seven now. And I said, I pray, Lord of God of heaven, a great awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which... We have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. I pray. Prayer is that essential beginning of spiritual leadership. And the vision, when it's big, it has to have God to empower it or it won't work. And where do we get God to empower that? It's in the vehicle of prayer. If you don't need to pray and you can accomplish the goal, your goal wasn't big enough. Nehemiah prayed for four months. Do you remember later how long it's going to take to build the wall? An impossible task? 52 days. Just just do the equation. It took him four months for a 50 to pray for a 52 day job. I think that's a good ratio right there. But the foundation was prayer. The beginning was prayer. The very beginning of that project was bathed in prayer. And that impossible job was done by the power of God. He unified everybody as one man, no matter what the trials or difficulties were. God gave them grace and A to Z, they finished it. And at the end of the 52 days, what happened? Great revival happened. And just on a real practical note, prayer helps our stress. (laughs) Prayer helps strengthen us. You feel stressed, pray. I'm still feel stressed, pray more. You feel weak, pray. You still feel weak, pray some more. Isaiah 40 verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall be shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So I pray and notice to the God of heaven, the one who is enthroned in the heavens, and I am not. It's an important thing. When we're praying to God, don't make God a little stronger than us. People often say that. They they often picture God as a little more merciful than the most merciful person I know. That's why I'm in trouble. (laughs) No, God's mercies are so great that no human being has ever even... Touched the mercies of God. God's patience is not like my mom's patience. I'm running out of patience with you. God, you're running out of patience with me. No, God doesn't run out of patience. God is not a little bit stronger than the strongest guy you know. He's not a little richer than the the richest billionaire on earth. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. All power is God's. And we need to understand when we're praying, we are talking to the one who has all love, all grace, all mercy. And he says, so please, I want to tap into the one who all things are possible. Let your ear be attentive. Do you you hear this? It's dependence. First, I pray, oh God of heaven, you are God, I am not You are in heaven. I am on earth. You are all powerful. I have no power. There's humility. But now it turns as please give attention. Let your ear be attentive. Now it's dependence. If you don't listen, if you don't act, this is not going to get done. This is a project that takes an almighty God to do it. And then he says, what separates us from God? What, what, what's clogging the drain? <laughs> if there's anything clogging the drain, for God to be able to pour out his power, to pour out his mercy, to pour out his strength, to restore Jerusalem back to where God would want it to be, what is it? It's always our sin, isn't it? We have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah says it plainly. He confesses it. There's no attempt with any excuses whatsoever. I have sinned. My sinned. Period. It's raw. It's blunt. There's no fine print at the end. There's no excuses. I have sinned, but you know, I've been through a really hard year. So calculate that into it, God. So it's really not a big deal. Sin with a capital S is more of a sin with a small s, you know. No, just I've sinned. My fathers have sinned. Both my father's house and I, we have acted corruptly. And I love this because I think Nehemiah was probably living a pretty righteous life even though he was in Babylon. But he still adds himself into the equation with his whole nation. You know, just think about it a minute. If my people will humble themselves, turn from their wicked way and pray, I will hear from heaven and what? Heal the land. Do you hear anything in there that depending on if if Satan were a little weaker, but he's not, if the world would quit being so evil, but they won't stop, Then God could heal the land. But, you know, guys, not with the Democrats in charge and not with Iran being the way they are and not with the economy of, you know, God could heal things. if, If people would back off a little bit and be a little less wicked, then I could heal the land. Do you hear that verse? It has nothing to do with Satan. has nothing to do with the world. It has 100% to do with God's children praying or not praying. It's not about the sin of the world. It's about our sin. Now, hopefully our sin is not as many or great as the world in which we live in. But it's irrelevant, isn't it? Because much has been given. Much is required. We have a lot of light. And so... Even a little bit of sin in our lot of light is a big sin. So God says, confess your sin. Quit quit saying to the world their sin. My sin. If my people will humble themselves and pray and get the sin, if the sin's clogging the pipe, Lord, forgive my sin. I will hear from heaven and heal their land. America is getting darker, not because Satan got stronger. He did not discover that special Popeye can of spinach and men have not thought up new sins. They're doing the same old sins they've done for thousands of years. Sin didn't get worse. Satan didn't get stronger. But yet, I will agree with you that the Christian light is dimming. And it's dimming because God's people are praying less. It has to be. That has to be the answer. Because we have the total answer. If God's people will pray So Nehemiah comes and he says, help with the sin issue, forgive us. And then in verse eight and nine, remember, I pray, the word you have commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are faithless, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling of my name. Now this shows that, even though they were in Babylon, that Nehemiah had access to the scriptures, probably in the local Jewish synagogue. But he quotes perfectly some powerful scriptures out of Leviticus chapter 26 and out of Deuteronomy 30. And I wish we had time to read those, but I have them there in your notes. Just take time and and read it. It's a prophecy of exactly what they did. He actually says in there, if you don't have faith to take the Sabbath year off, (laughs) you don't tithe the seventh year, God's going to eventually have to take it from you. Do you know that with the tithes and the offerings? You can give it and be rewarded for it, or you cannot give it, but you will not have it to spend. (laughs) You will not have the enjoyment of it. I had one of the pastors at San Diego years ago wrestling with tithing and, and uh, he, he finally was doing his taxes and, and he, he looked at it and he's like, okay, this is in November, December. He knows how much is gonna come in January and, and it came out to whatever it was back then, like $3,589.26. I don't remember exactly what it was. That's my, that would be a true 10% if I gave it this year. And he's like, I just can't afford to do that. In January, his car broke down, and it cost almost to the penny <laughs> that amount to fix it. And uh, and the Lord just said, you can give it or I'll take it, but you're not going to enjoy spending it. It's not going to be yours to spend. And that's exactly what God said. You didn't for. Four three hundred 490 years, you never tied that seventh year. So now I'm just going to take the 70 years and I'm going to kick you out of the land. You're going to give me my years together at once, but you're not going to be able to enjoy it. Instead of this one year of wonderful vacation, not having to work, spend the time with your family, letting God's supernatural provide for you, it was not an enjoyable year. It was in Babylon in hardship for the first generation for sure being carried away captive that God, that God got his year back or his 70 years back. And he actually says that in here. And, and then he basically says that if you do these different things, I'm gonna take you away captive into a foreign land. But when you're there, if at some moment you recognize your sin and you will acknowledge that sin, then I will joyfully bring you right back into the land And prosper you more than you prospered before. Isn't that awesome? God doesn't say, well, I'll back in the land, but it'll be nothing compared to what it used to be. That'll just be the rest of your life, living on crumbs. No, he actually says, when you repent, I'll bring you back into the land, and I will prosper you in a way that your forefathers couldn't even dream of that kind of prosperity. Interesting, the grace of God well, there is no doubt the secret is the great power in prayer to plead the promise. He takes God's scripture and he takes it to God saying, you said this. Now, if you have kids and maybe your, your kids annoyed you by going, but daddy, you promised. Oh, ugh. you know, I didn't want to have to, you know, you promised you're going to take us to the movie Saturday. And you're just sitting down and getting ready to watch your game. And your kids are going, are you ready, dad? What? You said you're in taste of the, you promised. Oh, you know what? Let's do it twice next week. Yeah, leave me alone, you know. You promised. Ah, oh, it's annoying. But when we come to God and say, God, you promised, he loves it. He rejoices. He delights in us taking his promises and saying, we expect you to do this. But we have to come in faith and claim those promises David said in Psalms 81.10, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and what? I will fill it. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. God will not open the storehouses until we have opened our mouths in asking him to perform his promises. So you promised I'm repenting. I don't know what the whole nation's doing at this moment, but I'm just trusting we're all broken and repentive over this. Hear my prayer and return us back to the land as you have promised. And verse 10, now these are the servants and your people whom you have redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. These are your people whom you have redeemed. Do you remember that funny story in Exodus 32? You remember that when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and Aaron and the gang make the golden calf and they're acting horribly? And what does God say to Moses? The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 3, 2, 7, get down for your people, (laughs) whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They're your people, Moses, and they're acting horribly. And then God basically threatens to completely destroy them uh, if you remember, and, uh, and Moses comes right back and, and he says, uh, Moses pleaded with the Lord God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Sort of like the husband and wife, right? Your people, they're your kids. No, they're not my kids. Uh, when they act like that, they're your kids. They're your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. He just comes right back at them. No, 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 no. I, I did not bring them out of Egypt. God who brought him out of Egypt. you are your people. No, Moses, you are your people. And then he comes back. He gives this great dissertation. And, and in Exodus 32, 13, he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore to your own self and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land, which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever aha checkmate God they're your people you promised their parents and you promised them the land and they would have it forever so end of story what does God do he says checkmate you got me notice in verse 14 Exodus 32 14 the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to them to who his people yeah they're they're mine I admit it they're not your people they're my people So God, I'm I'm coming to you. They're your people, and it's your great power and by your strong hand. God, there's nothing hard for you, right? Don't you just love saying that? God, there's nothing hard for you. That's just, oh, just set your soul free. Just say that also. Get your eyes on the Lord, and there's nothing hard for God. See you later. No, in verse 11, Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So, Lord, I need you to prosper me. Notice he didn't say, God, send somebody else. Lord, I'm praying for that guy you're going to (laughs) use. I'm praying you would keep him safe. And I'm praying that when he goes, talks to the king, the king doesn't kill him. That that poor sucker, whoever he is, Lord, be with him. He doesn't say that, does he? He's saying action is needed by a human being. And Lord, I'm your sacrificial lamb. Here I am, Lord, use me. God, as I go and put my life on the line, I ask you to be with me and watch over me and grant me blessings in the front or in the side of this king. was a life and death situation. Well, what do we learn here? Marks of competent leader spiritual leadership. 1. A leader has a clear recognition of the needs. Number 2, a leader is personally concerned with the needs. Number three, a serious leader goes first to God with the problems. Number four, a leader is available to meet the needs himself. We also learn the benefits of prayer. Number one, prayer makes us wait. We hate it, but we need it, right? God's always slowing us down and we need it. Number two, prayer helps me to clarify the vision Waiting and waiting and clarifying, and God making it clear. Number three, prayer quiets my heart. And number four, prayer activates my faith. Next week, we're going to see more of this. We see a little bit this week, but four principles on preparation. Number one, changing the hearts is God's speciality. Praying and waiting go hand in hand. And faith is not a synonym for disorder or a substitute for careful planning. Number four, opposition is to be expected when God's will is being carried out. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if Satan didn't show up? Wouldn't it be nice if, if you could just go into Satan's dark domain and lead people out of there and lead them into the light and not have to go through the spiritual battle and pay that price? But unfortunately, there is a real devil with real demons and real people that are you being used by him. So come on up, Matthias. Uh, Lord, as we now just go to you here in the 10 minutes that we have left tonight in prayer, we just ask, Lord, that you would guide us. Hmm. Talking with a... Some of the leaders this week, Lord, you, we come about this very, very point. We're tucked away inside this several levels of houses into this little park, into this little community that is totally invisible to the greater OC area, complete, completely unknown by the majority of people within a five mile radius. But yet, Lord, you you have a great work to do here. I know Costa Mesa was a little country church on the edge of town out in the middle of some avocado trees, totally out of the way of anything. And you drew the hippies by thousands. And so, Lord, I know that we don't need these aids. We just need the power of your spirit to guide us and direct us. And Lord, as we know that we want to be burdened like Nehemiah over the distressed of our world, over the walls broken down in our world. Lord, we know that Nehemiah didn't have such a broken heart without your spirit's aid. Lord, give us a broken heart. Bring us to that brokenness where we are destined to be a people of prayer where we are drawn to be people seeking you intensely. Lord, do that work in us, God. And if nothing else, let it always be said that Calvary Chapel Los Alamitos is a church of prayer.